Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. American literature has intersected with the Constitution and American democracy in fascinating ways. NCC President Jeffrey Rosen recently discussed those interactions with scholars Bernadette Meyer, Alison LaCroix, and Catherine Zuckert. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's convening of America's Town Hall. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of this wonderful institution. I'm so excited about the learning ahead this morning, and let us inspire ourselves for it by reciting together the National Constitution Center's meaningful mission statement. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. Before we start, I want to share some exciting programs that are coming up. This Friday, we have a scholar exchange as part of our live classes for all ages. It's on the Second Amendment, and our guest will be Clark Neely of the Cato Institute. He was co-counsel in the landmark Heller case, and he joined us on a really interesting We the People podcast episode this week about the state of play of the Second Amendment. If you haven't checked out We the People, which I host every week, please do. It's such a wonderful font of learning and light for all of us. Next Thursday, a week before the anniversary of the start of the Constitutional Convention, we host a program exploring key texts, authors, and sources the founders look to when drafting the Constitution. It'll be a wonderful continuation of the conversation we're going to have today about the founders and literature, and our guests will be Richard Albert of the University of Texas, Jonathan Ginap of Stanford and Colleen Sheehan of Arizona State. And later this month, we conclude the school year for 2021 with a very special guest, Justice Stephen Breyer on May 28th. So please join us for that. We'll be taking your questions throughout the program today. So please put them in the Q&A box and I will ask them as best I can. And now it is such an honor to introduce our panelists, three brilliant scholars who have shed so much meaningful light on the crucial and illuminating connections between law and literature. Alison Lacroix is the Robert Newton Reed Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. She's also an associate member of the University of Chicago's Department of History. She's the author of The Ideological Origins of American Federalism, which we have discussed on the We the People podcast. And in addition to her important writings about law, she's co-edited several books on law and literature, including Power, Prose, and the Purse, Law, Literature, and Economic Transformation, and most recently, Canons and Codes, Law, Literature, and America's Wars. She's currently writing a book about U.S. constitutional discourse between 1815 and 1861. Bernadette Myler is the Carl and Sheila Spaeth Professor of Law, Professor by Courtesy of English, and Associate Dean for Research and Intellectual Life at Stanford Law School. She's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow in Constitutional Studies. She's the author of Theaters of Pardoning and the co-editor of two other books on law and literature, The Oxford Handbook of Law and the Humanities and New Directions in Law. And she's written many important articles, including Daniel Defoe and the Written Constitution. And Catherine Zuckert is the Reeves Drew Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame and visiting professor in the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. She's the author of Natural Right and the American Imagination, Political Philosophy and Novel Form. And she's written many important articles on politics and literature. 
and political theory, including Machiavelli's politics and Leo Strauss and the problem of political philosophy. It is such an honor to welcome our panelists. I'm so excited about the discussion, and I'm going to jump right in with you, Professor Lacroix. You have a wonderful article about the lawyer's library and the fact that many of the greatest founders, including Jefferson and Joseph Story and and John Marshall, believed that reading literature and novels was crucial to the cultivation of virtue and teaching us how to live. And you note that Thomas Jefferson, in response to a request by his prospective brother-in-law, Robert Skipworth, drafted a list of 148 recommended reading titles, which he broke down into a whole bunch of groups, and which included, in the fine arts category, 75 titles, including plays by Moliere and Dryden, the poetry of Homer and Virgil, and uh, several works of fiction, including Don Quixote, Tom Jones, Chaucer, and others. Tell us more about Thomas Jefferson's reading list and why he and the other important members of the founding era who you mentioned believed that, as Jefferson wrote, everything is useful, which contributes to fix in the principles and practices of virtue. Thank you very much for inviting me to be here, Jeff, and for this um, great discussion and question. So, yes, I think the Jefferson list from 1771 Uh, is just this wonderful and revealing document that tells us so many different things. So first of all, as you said, Jefferson wrote it in response to a query from a prospective brother-in-law, a sort of near relation, and he wrote it in 1771. So this is before the American Revolution. Jefferson at this point was a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses, so Virginia's colonial legislature. So it's sort of early in the career of Thomas Jefferson as we know him. Um, But obviously, even then, all his kind of Virginia connections and family members and so forth knew that he was someone for whom libraries and reading were very important. So I think it's really interesting that Skipwith, Robert Skipwith, wrote him this letter. Um, and there's a lot of discussion, you know, of course, about reading and, and sort of the value of libraries. And was Skipwith trying to basically create a shelf that would make him look like an educated Virginia gentleman? I think that might have been some of the motivation behind the request, but it also went a lot deeper. So Um, It wasn't just an instrumental kind of, what are the things I can put on my shelf? They didn't have Zoom, obviously, but what would look good behind me on a Zoom shelf? There was really the sense of cultivation and kind of what does it mean to be an educated person? Um, And so, as you said, it's striking, I think, to the modern eye, how much of Jefferson's list was fiction. So it wasn't all kind of improving nonfiction or political philosophy. There was a real sense that fiction, Don Quixote, Tom Jones, Pamela, and a lot of less familiar works. So for instance, Peregrine Pickle, Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddle, these are sort of in the fringes of, of literary history. And I think the other thing I would note too is this isn't just a Jefferson story. So lots of other members of the founding generation were really, really deeply kind of immersed in reading literature and thought of it not as a, not as a kind of guilty pleasure, but as something that, that was part of their intellectual process. And this included women as well. So John and Abigail Adams were both so steeped in Tristram Shandy, this massive doorstop novel. And throughout their letters for their entire lives, they would refer to people as characters in Tristram Shandy. And this is, of course, in addition to Abigail Adams, John Adams, and others taking on pseudonyms from the classics. So it's just this whole worldview about none of this being sort of outside the political realm, but actually very much a part of the political realm that I think is 
really fascinating. Wonderful. Love the Tristram Shandy recommendation. We'll try to keep track of these in the chat and so folks can read them later. And the vision of Abigail and John, as you say, referring to themselves both by classical pseudonyms and also recommending novels is inspiring. Bernadette Myler, you have an inspiring article, Daniel Defoe and the Written Constitution. And as it happens, not long ago, I was reading the sources that inspired Benjamin Franklin to create his famous list of 13 virtues. And they included Daniel Defoe's essay on projects, which I hadn't heard of before, but read when I saw Franklin recommended it, as well as Plutarch's Lives, Cotton Mather's On Doing Good, and the latitudinarian sermons of John Tillotson. So Defoe was an unfamiliar to many of us. The essay on project is kind of a how-to manual about how to be ingenious and, and make uh, inventions. Tell us about why Defoe was so important to the founding generation for his views on written constitutionalism and how those views were reflected both in Robinson Crusoe and in his other writings. Thanks so much, first of all, for having me on this wonderful program, Jeff. I'm, I'm really excited about the discussion. And I think your experience of encountering a reference to an essay by Defoe that you didn't know before is one that most of us have shared because Defoe was unbelievably prolific. Um, and it turns out that he wrote on most topics. Uh, and so if you think that he didn't write on something, it's probably that's probably the wrong view. Um, Defoe wrote in the early 18th century, most of his most uh, famous works. Um, he might be most uh, known this year for his uh, Diary of a Plague Year, uh, since that was particularly relevant to our situation in COVID. But one noteworthy fact about Defoe is that his Robinson Crusoe was widely read in early America, and it was really one of the foundational novels at the time of the founding. Um, and it was a novel that had a lot of political implications. As Allison was mentioning, I, the members of the founding generation read novels partly as political guides, and Tristram Shandy may have been one of those. Uh, Defoe, Defoe's Robinson Crusoe was certainly taken up by people like Rousseau and others as furnishing a guide both to living and to politics. Um, but Defoe wasn't only writing Robinson Crusoe. And in fact, he wrote a an argument on behalf of the religious dissenters in the Carolinas in the early 18th century that established some of the bases that we think of as part of written constitutionalism, referring to the rights that the dissenters had under the fundamental constitutions of Carolina and the uh, charter and trying to hold uh, the colony accountable to those rights. So um, both in his literary writings, Robinson Crusoe and Robinson Crusoe Part II, uh, which is less read, um, and also his writings on the history of the pirates, which talk about piratical constitutions, as well as his political writings, Defoe presented a picture of the technology of writing as uh, important for grounding a polity. And so he really elaborated four of the characteristics of written constitutionalism that we see later, someone like Chief Justice Marshall advocating in Marbury against Madison. And 
Among those are promulgation, right? So writing was important for disseminating a constitution, disseminating it to all the people who would be part of the polity. For durability, so that um, writing allowed for people to put down what they wanted to endure and make sure that that could be referred back to in the future when uh, it became an issue. Then also documenting a social contract. Um, So Robinson Crusoe is also taken as a book about kind of founding a a polity, right? So what are the contracts that you have to enter into? What kind of social contract are you entering into when you're um, creating a new society? So um, constitutions also were taken to document the bases for a social contract. And then finally, the idea of limiting legislative power, that the Constitution was a text you could refer back to, whether or not you had judicial review, um, in order to limit the power of a further legislature. So um, Defoe, kind of in his various writings, outlined all of these aspects of the technology of writing and how they could help to establish a constitution uh, or a proto-constitution in the polity. And I think that those sets of writings were influential for the founding generation. Thank you so much for that. Such a clear distillation of the principles of Defoe. So interesting to learn that he didn't think that writtenness was crucial to constitutionalism, that others could enforce it, but that also it could help maintain the social contract. And such a great invitation to read the works of Defoe. I was inspired to get the Delphi edition. These really, for a dollar, you can get his complete works. And as you say, there's so much. And he has wonderful futuristic works, which imagine the core virtues being played out in the future as well, which are phenomenal. Catherine Zuckert, in your riveting book, Natural Right and the American Imagination, you set out to examine classic works of literature, which involve a withdrawal from civil society and some kind of return, a kind of reenactment of the philosophy of the Declaration, which imagined a state of nature in which we're all imbued with unalienable rights. Tell us what the basic ideals of the Declaration were, what that natural rights theory was. And as we've just heard, some of those contractarian notions were in the air in in 18th century Whig literature and the works of Defoe and others. Tell us what were some of the major works, both right before and during the founding and immediately after, where the theory of the Declaration was reflected. Actually, I'm not a historian, and so I'm not prepared to answer that question specifically. One of the things that I think is notable about um, American political documents and the tradition is that it's very dependent in some ways on European uh, social contract theory, um, particularly John Locke, but also Rousseau, um, and the literature draws on uh, the example of Robinson Crusoe. But these sources aren't mentioned. And so um, we have up on the screen, we the people. Well, how is we the people defined? That's actually the function of the Declaration of Independence. Um, you know, in the famous beginning, it says, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another and to assume uh, the among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled them. Um, and then we hold these truths. So who are we, the people? We, the people, are those who 
hold these truths to be self-evident, and they are the famous uh, declarations that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and to secure these rights, governments um, are instituted among men, um, deriving their just powers, etc. This draft authored by Thomas Jefferson, but it was a committee, and the committee, and it was signed by individual people, but it really is the definition of what it is to be an American based on this political philosophy. And at least the argument of my book is um, beginning with um, James Fenimore Cooper, who is the next generation, uh, what the classic American authors, well, so Hemingway, who's been on television recently, but Twain before him, uh, Hawthorne and Melville did, was that they went back and re-examined the meaning of these principles, which are not in the Constitution, but the Constitution says to make a more, we the people, to make a more perfect union. So there's the sense that the declaration is somehow in the middle. Um, but at least what I have found interesting about the novelistic treatments of these principles is that their meaning is in question. And one of the few things that the classic authors um, agree upon is they agree these are the principles. What they also agree about is that Americans at their time, and I would say at our time, don't understand what these principles mean very well. And that's the central problem of our politics. Very well put. And you so well describe the conflict amount of different conceptions of those principles, including between a more uh, Rousseauian and a Hobbesian conception of human nature and describe how that is reflected in novels throughout American history. Professor Lacroix, take us from the founding era into the 19th century a bit and having introduced us to the fact that the founders thought that uh, reading fiction was especially important for civic participation. What were some of the central works that in the early 19th century became a vehicle, as you put it, not only for developing Republican sentiments in individuals, but also a marker of people's achievement? Right. Well, I think, um, as you said, Jeff, that last point is particularly uh, important in the early 19th century, because you have this subsequent generation of um, latter-day founders or early 19th century people or interbellum people, as I like to think of them, between sort of the War of 1812 and the Civil War. And it's very much this adolescent period, very self-consciously so, because a lot of these statesmen, writers, commentators, political uh, participants grew up or were born during the revolution. So Chief Justice Marshall was still the Chief Justice for much of this period, but his younger colleague was Justice Joseph Story. And Joseph Story was born during the revolution and apparently was raised in Massachusetts hearing these stories about the great things his father and his other family members had done during the revolution. So setting aside the psychological consequences of what that might do to spending your childhood hearing about your father's efforts and stealing cannons off the common in Boston so the British couldn't get them, there was this real sense of unfinished work. And we see this even in young Lincoln. So Lincoln gave a speech in Springfield, Illinois in 1837 that very much picks up on the, these ideas, this kind of unfinished work, because of course it reminds us they didn't know the Civil War was coming. So they didn't conceive of themselves as living before something. They were thinking about living after something. And this anxiety about maintaining the legacy 
but also creating the legacy. I mean, I think they did not think we are implementing, liquidating, putting into practice a set plan. They thought we have to figure out what this plan is and means. And so it was very much a creative project. And literature is quite interesting here as well, because you have justices like Marshall and Story reading literature, reading novels, writing letters back and forth where Story gave a series of public speeches at Harvard, the Phi Beta Kappa Address, which was very much a kind of public oration in this period of great oratory. And he talked about building American national culture. And he specifically mentioned literature and the arts and sort of said, we have politics figured out, or at least we have a great plan, but what about culture? And so he talked about novels and particularly singled out a number of novelists and works of literature. And Marshall wrote to Story and took him to task for mentioning a lot of authors, but not one of Marshall's favorites. And that author was Jane Austen. So Marshall said, you named all these other great writers, including Mariah Edgeworth, Frances Burney. So lots of these novels were being written by women authors and British women. And then Marshall says, you know, what about Austen? And so they have this back and forth about Jane Austen. And the final piece is, is a part of the kind of figuring out what the founding was about and establishing American nationhood was this early 19th century period as a period of writing biographies of the founders, which was this interesting project. It was both a big moneymaker. So people did it. John Marshall wrote a biography of George Washington, partly because he had access to good sources, but also because it was a huge source of income to write one of these things that basically became a bestseller. So you see these kind of lawyers and judges and people kind of thinking like, well, who can I write a biography of? And how can I both stake my claim, help build this legacy, and also uh, make money doing it. So Patrick Henry, much of what we know about Patrick Henry comes from William Wirt's biography of Patrick Henry, which Wirt started out as this kind of, I'll establish myself as a claim as an author, I'll make money. But then he's, you know, writing letters all over Virginia to try to get people to tell him what did Henry say in this one debate? And that's while Wirt is being Attorney General of the United States. So it's just this melding of worlds that we would find very surprising today. So fascinating. So interesting to hear about Story's Phi Beta Kappa address. And of course, you think naturally of the Emerson Phi Beta Kappa address. And wow, those Phi Beta Kappa addresses were significant around that time. The biographies are so powerful, that multi-volume set that Marshall wrote of Washington. And the fact that, as you say, these statesmen and justices were also literary figures. You have story writing poetry, you tell us. And of course, John Quincy Adams, wake up every morning and before swimming in the Potomac, would often write classical poems about virtue, which he collected an inspiration to us all. Professor Myler, you have a very powerful article, Between the States and the Signers, the Politics of the Declaration of Independence Before the Civil War, which describes how the central question of whether we the people are united from the Declaration or whether at the time of the Declaration they consisted of the people of the several states, that central question of constitutional theory in the early republic is reflected in the literature of the period. Tell us about some of the books and novels, as well as other works that reflect this central debate about who is sovereign, we the people of the United States or we the people of the individual states. 
Yes. Uh, thanks, Jeff. And I would just point out that that uh, piece originated in another National Constitution Center program. So thank you for that as well. So part of what I'm talking about in that piece is how the kind of technologies of writing and here, particularly the autograph, uh, wind up becoming important even after Defoe and after the promulgation of the Constitution and the Declaration. So what happens is that in the early 19th century, autograph collection becomes a very big phenomenon, and it takes over uh, the thoughts about the history of the Declaration. Um, And so uh, people are trying to collect autographs of those who were the signers of the Declaration, collecting letters and other forms of autographs. But at the same time, there is a kind of contest about how those signatures are going to be represented on printed versions of the Declaration, and in particular, whether they're going to be represented as signers from the particular states or signers as en masse. Um, And this becomes a flashpoint over the question of whether the the declaration is really the product of individual states or a product of the American people as a whole. And I would say that actually one of the big functions of American literature in the periods after the founding has been to call into question who are we the people, right? So who are these, who is this people and who's included and who's not included in the people that are the people of the constitution or the people of the declaration. And this is true in the late 19th century. There are a lot of interesting works on kind of citizenship and literature in the late 19th century. Brooke Thomas has written about this extensively, but then it carries over into, I think, our contemporary literary scene. So I would point to work like um, Cynthia Rankine's Citizen, which explicitly calls us to think about, you know, who is a citizen and deals with um, questions of race and uh, racial division within America and sort of brings to the forefront this issue of who who is included. Um, And also the poem Declaration by U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith, which is this extremely interesting poem involving, uh, it's an erasure poem, which means that you take the words of a text verbatim, but you erase parts of it to make a different poem. And it's an erasure poem of the Declaration of Independence that then turns it into a poem about um, enslavement and then the contemporary legacies of slavery. And I think that that uh, issue of what the relation is between membership and then also the literal language as opposed to, say, the spirit of the Constitution, is an issue kind of throughout American literature as well. And I would then also go back to Frederick Douglass, who um, has a very important speech about the Constitution, where he says that he's refusing to read it as a pro-slavery document because it never literally mentions the word slavery. And so here he uses kind of the technology of plain reading or the approach of plain reading and literalism as a way to insist on holding the American polity to a higher standard and uh, insist that slavery isn't legitimized by the Constitution. So powerful on so many fronts. Thanks for reminding us about Douglas. And would you like to read a brief passage from Tracy K. Smith? It's such a beautiful poem. Sure. I'd be happy to read it. Yeah, definitely. Um, Here we go. Um, He has sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people. He has plundered our 
ravaged R, destroyed the lives of R, taking away R, abolishing our most valuable, and altering fundamentally the forms of our. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here, taken captive on the high seas to bear. Mm, so powerful. Thank you so much for that. Professor Zuckert, I'd love you to give our friends a sense of the arguments in your wonderful natural rights book. And of course, you spend a great amount of time discussing Huck Finn, the famous relationship between Huck and Jim. And you talk about how Huck has to return to society to free his friend, Jim, and quote a phrase that my great college teacher, Sakvan Berkovich, used as an emblem for the <laughs> for American literature. You, you know him, of course, that great scholar of the American Jeremiah and of Puritanism. I uh, would always quote Huck as saying, I reckon I got a light out for the territory ahead of the rest, because Aunt mm -hmm. Sally, she's going to adopt me and civilize me, and I can't stand it. I've been there before. What's the significance of that line? And more broadly, what's the significance of Huck Finn in, in telling us about the uh, contestations over the American idea? Huh, okay, so when I was listening to the um, to Allison and Bernadette, I, I thought of going in a different direction. But so the significance of Huck's lighting out to the territory is um, the American tradition of always beginning anew. And that is connected with the reasons why the original settlers came. Um, and this is, I think, material that's examined and re-examined from almost the beginning of uh, um what would be a distinctively American literature. So I would I would actually begin with Cooper's Pioneers, um, which is about Natty Bumpo, who's the man who doesn't want to respect the law. He doesn't want to have regulations as to whether he can have a gun, when he can shoot, when he can kill, because he wants to live according to laws of nature and nature's God and who has the right to get in his way? Well, it turns out that they're two different competitors. Um, one is immediately um, the American government or a character named Judge Templeton. Who, well, he thinks he owns the property and he has the right to the animals that live on the property or the wood, et cetera. But then the question of, well, and so where did Judge Templeton get the property? Huh, well, he got it um, when the loyalists left after the American Revolution. Well, did the Americans really have a right to take this land um, from the original settlers or their descendants? And then, last of the Mohicans, did these white settlers have the right to take the land from the people who were living there before, um, the indigenous peoples? These are fundamental questions, and they actually are not very easy to answer. So Cooper thought that he was investigating the meaning of these fundamental um, American principles. And then to turn to Twain, Twain wrote um, a criticism of Fenimore Cooper's literary sins. It is hilarious to read, um, and he destroyed Cooper's reputation, because he said, this is totally unrealistic. So then Huck Finn, yes, Huck leads civilization. Why? It's uncomfortable. He, his father is a drunk and beats on him. He gets no protection. Um, and he's been taken in by a widow, but, you know, she 
she forces him to bathe, forces him to go to school. He doesn't want to do that, so he lights off down the river. Um, what happens on the river is that he and then the escaped slave Jim get attacked because they have no protection. Huck has conventional opinions, so when he decides to defend Jim and not to turn him in, that's he's going against his conscience as he understands it, and he decides famously that he'll be damned, but he's going to stay with Jim. Yet in the very controversial end of the novel, um, Huck and Jim go back. They meet up with Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer knows that Jim has been legally freed, but he doesn't tell Jim, and they go through all these antics. So the only thing that works to free Jim is the law, but Huck can't live comfortably with the law. So we get, yes, the law, the will, frees Jim. That secures his freedom. But Huck, who loves Jim, doesn't like civilization. And so he lights out for the territory. As Mark Twain himself or Samuel Clemens lighted out for the territory as described in Roughing It. Um, and actually, that's a theme of um, Ralph Ellison. He writes about going to the territory of Oklahoma. It's the frontier. It's where you're not regulated. And so there is this theme persistently in American literature of how human beings or particularly Americans resist the law and how you justify the kind of restraints the law places on you. Wow, that is such a clear expression of enacting the philosophy of the Declaration through the settlement of the West and through literature. Mm -hmm. If you can't be satisfied with the existing social contract, rather than have a revolution, you light out for the territories and begin a new mm -hmm. state of nature and start again. And that really distills the essence of that teaching so beautifully. Because I know you, you were going to go in a different direction. Do you want to set, I, I have a question for all of you for the next round, which will involve 20th <laughs> century literature, but do you want to tee up a question or a thought for Allison before I ask it to? Oh, well, I, okay. So there's the two themes I had thought of talking about before was one, didacticism in literature. Allison had emphasized the founders thinking that literature is a way of teaching virtue. That's something that's come back in a movement towards classical education, you know, forming moral character. Um, does literature do it or doesn't it? Um, Cooper thought that was what he was trying to do. And that's what Twain makes fun of him for doing. Um, and most of the you know, sort of canonical American novelists after Cooper don't try to be explicitly didactic. I mean, I happen to be a big so he has a quip, um, Twain has a quip in which he says, humor cannot professedly teach or professedly preach, but it has to do both if it's going to live together. And that's kind of the challenge for from the literary side of how you teach, but without showing that you're trying to teach. And the other was, I think, picking up on, on both of the comments that in right after the revolution, um, beginning with Cooper, but also maybe most um, dramatically in the works of Nathaniel Hawthorne, um, American novelists start trying to come to terms with the relation to their past. So the relation of Americans to the British, but then also, of course, um, not just the British, but the puritanical 
foundations of the United States. Um, and I, I think there's probably still quite a few um, high school students who are forced to suffer through um, Scarlet Letter, which is a wonderful, wonderful novel and has feminine heroine, but I don't actually think it's a big hit very often with any high school students. Agreed. And uh, those are wonderful thoughts and help me formulate my question for for all of you for this round. Catherine just said, post-Cooper, American literature is less explicitly didactic, less self-consciously devoted to inculcating virtue, as Jefferson suggested. Virtue defined as a form of self-mastery or self-government or overcoming our unreasonable emotions and passions with reason, uh, self-reliance. Here's the question. I mentioned Sack van Berkovich and got some appreciative nods, as we, we all know, who admired his work. Professor Berkovich wrote a great book called The American Jeremiad, which talks about how much of American literature takes the Jeremiad form of a preacher or central figure denouncing the congregation for having fallen short of American ideals, but in the process of denunciation, reaffirming the ideals and summoning them back to the light to once again be the shining city on a hill. So the broad question, Allison, is do you see American literature in the 20th century, say, as continuing that essentially didactic function of reaffirming the centrality and truth of the American ideal in the course of uh, denouncing people for falling short of it? Or in the 20th century, does American literature lose its didactic and moral function in the way that uh, Catherine suggested? Yeah, it's a great and really rich question. I mean, one of the things I think about in the kind of late 19th and then early to mid 20th century kind of literature and politics shift is, is this question of what people think literature ought to do. And this especially comes up, I think, when academics and others think about the value of reading literature. And this is, of course, something that's very much at the forefront of public discussion today, the sort of what is the value of the humanities kind of question. And, you know, I, I think, yes, virtue installation and didacticism were clearly part of the project, even in the early period. But I think another part was this idea of, of building sympathy and sympathy at an individual level, but also the ability to understand others' situation. And that, I think, almost necessarily tends toward lots of different stories being told um, and so, and I think that that impulse was there early on, you know, so if we think about Adam Smith talking about the impartial spectator or theorists in the 20th century, like Jürgen Habermas talking about literature and the coffee house. And a lot of that, I think he meant sort of both literally and figuratively as ways that people understand the experience of others. So as a historian, I would think of that as, as the importance of context. And that to me seems like one of the big overarching themes of 20th century American literature, which is this, I don't think of it as division or fragmentation. I mean, I guess I would think of it as multitudinousness or multiplicity and sort of understanding that as a value in and of itself, both again, if one wants to be instrumental, because to be a good fill in the blank, citizen, lawyer, what have you, it's good to be able to speak to a variety of audiences or understand how to make an emotional appeal but I think it also gets to something deeper. And this also kind of is when we think about legal interpretation and, and textual interpretation, which, which others have mentioned, you know, we're in this period where the Supreme Court is fascinated by text and textualism, but of course there's also context. And so text in isolation can be 
very misleading if we think we know what a phrase means because we can isolate it. And I would say, no, the context part is very important. And so to me, that's part of the the broader 20th century story and certainly enriching and hearing from more kinds of stories. So fascinating. The notion of providing context for the text in a common law sense is a wonderful setup for my question to Professor Myler, who right now is uh, examining the history of English common law ancestry of U.S. constitutionalism. And the reference to a focus on multiplicity in the 20th century, rather than moral uh, didacticism or unity, of course, made me think of Henry Adams, who struck the famous uh, antithesis between the unity represented by Chartres, by medieval faith, and the multiplicity represented by the dynamo. And Bernadette, answer the question as you think best, but you see the themes on the table. Do you think that the move toward multiplicity and pluralism was a move against didacticism, or was it a different expression of the American ideal? And uh, in, the, in the course of answering, t- tell us about your research about common law of constitutionalism. Thanks so much for that. So I, I think I would like to actually build on, I think, what's something that um, Catherine mentioned, which was about the interesting timing of uh, thinking about the past um, in the early republic, that um, Americans become interested in how to reconcile this kind of pre-revolutionary past with their present, and whether or not the Constitution is really this incredible uh, innovation, or whether it really harkens back to these pre-constitutional moments. And we see the same tendency in literature after the Civil War, where there are there is literature dealing with the antebellum period that sort of is asking how much has changed or, or hasn't. And that's connected with my project on common law originalism, because part of what I'm suggesting is that even though we have this technology of the written constitution implemented at the time of the founding, that at the same time, there is this faith that, in fact, a lot of the rights that uh, the formerly British subjects who are now Americans thought that they were carrying forth were rights that were present under the common law, and that they would have understood them according to how the various and variegated common laws of the colonies would have expressed them um, within their own documents and within their uh, own legal traditions, as well as according to the work of William Blackstone or others from the British context. Um, And certainly, uh, Allison's work on kind of legal libraries at the time of the founding is really instructive in that regard, too, in terms of the different uh, times of common law that uh, members of the founding generation would have read. They didn't just read Blackstone, who was being promulgated very extensively in the late 18th century, but they also read the writings of Sir Edward Cook and uh, Sir Matthew Hale from the 17th century, which had a somewhat different conception of the common law um, embedded in it. But in terms of the this question about didacticism, I think that certainly there is didacticism, but the uh, trend in American literature that interests me a bit more is one of the kind of problem narrative. And I think that this may relate to one of the questions I saw in the Q&A, which was, well, what what did the founders think about Shakespeare? Certainly Shakespeare was a big figure at the time of the founding. And, you know, subsequently there were a lot of amateur theatrical companies promoting uh, and playing Shakespeare. We see there, there was an exhibit at the Folger Library a few years ago on Shakespeare and the founding. But one thing that I think is so powerful about Shakespeare is that a lot of the plays 
don't actually resolve questions. They raise these questions that are then available for public debate, but don't resolve them. And something like Melville's Billy Budd, I think, does something similar, right? So we have the question of, you know, who who's in the right in Billy Budd? You know, there are a lot of powerful interpretations. But I think that the the text itself doesn't give us a clear answer about who is right and who is wrong. And instead, it throws that question open for public discussion. And I think some of the most powerful American literature does exactly that. I think about later works like Susan Laurie Parks's The America Play or other works that really sort of pose problems for us and then throw it back on the American public to resolve those questions and discuss them. And I think that that's one of the most powerful aspects of literature is that it invites those who are readers or those who are audience members to take the conversation out of the novel or out of the playhouse and continue it themselves over dinner or drinks or in any other context. Beautifully put. Absolutely encouraging us to relate the plays of Shakespeare and literature to our own lives and make them relevant. Literature can indeed teach us how to live. As another great, my college teacher, Walter Jackson Bate, talked about using literature to see what can be put to use and uh, always picking up on the classical idea of literature as having a value of amusement and instruction. So Catherine, you introduced this fascinating thread about whether, despite the new movement to resurrect a sort of didactic teaching of literature as a way of cultivating virtue, that vision is still relevant today. Do you think it is or not, and why? I think it's relevant in a complicated way. So Allison started with one of the ways that literature teaches is by just extending your sense of empathy um, and introducing the reader in his or her living room, study, bedroom to the feelings and the point of view of a very different kind of person. And that's what a talented author can do that. But in a sense, you got empathy with a lot of different people that then is going to raise the question, well, which is best, which is just, etc. And so the the raising of, of problems that Bernadette um, had just mentioned. I guess I think that in 20th century literature, what's happened, um, and it's not just in literature, it's everywhere, educated people don't believe in the self-evident truths of the Declaration of Independence as being actually true. And so that creates a new kind of problem. I mean, what is the the basis of our thought that human beings have a dignity? Why? You know, you can, I guess I just read you can be made into fertilizer. Um, that's not very dignified. Um, somehow we think that that's wrong. Or if nature, is nature a source of rights? Or is it not? Is history then? tradition a source of rights. Well, it's also the source of a lot of wrongs. So I think that, um, well, at least I would say in Hemingway and Ellison and in Faulkner, who's not very popular now because I think he was uh, too sympathetic to the South. But what happens is that the principles of the Declaration are still seen to be somehow the basis of what America should be. We should recognize these rights. People should have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So instead of thinking that they're truths, they become aspirational goals. And then the, the question 
that that's connected to is the ever-increasing diversity of the American population. How do you bring all these stories or different cultures or different groups or different faiths together in agreeing on political principles? Um, and I guess in that sense, I, I think that the literature, in a way, the literary authors saw before um, it exploded into public. So now everybody sees what a problem with divisions we have. Um, and I, I guess I'm struck also by the irony that um, the neglected groups um, who were complained about, they show up in literature from the very beginning and they show up as dramatizing the way in which everybody isn't included, the way in which everybody isn't protected. So as challenges, I, so I'm thinking of um, Native Americans or um, members of the tribes, I'm thinking of women, um, thinking of Hispanics, immigrants, um, they aren't treated as being equal. Well, why not? Um, and that's, I think, I would agree. I think that's one of that has been and that continues to be one of the most important functions of literature. Very powerful. I felt a pang when you said that we no longer agree in the principles of the Declaration, and that's a powerful statement. That I wonder whether Allison and, and Bernadette agree that uh, that Americans no longer embrace the self-evident truths of the Declaration, or they embrace them but believe that they're being imperfectly achieved, which is, as you say, uh, Catherine, was the trope through most of uh, American literature. You know, we have time for one sort of closing intervention from each of you, and I don't want to give your light as best you think, but, but I am curious about, we have a project here at the Constitution Center called the Guardrails of Democracy, and when we often ask our speakers to suggest ways of resurrecting some of the speed bumps, roadblocks, and guarantees of, of democratic civil dialogue that have been eroded by technology, by polarization, and by other recent phenomena. So if, if you're moved to do so, I, I wonder whether you think that deep reading could be a resurrection of one of those guardrails. What what kind of books you would recommend? Because our friends in the chat are eager for reading recommendations. And uh, <laughs> what you think the role of literature is today in restoring American constitutionalism or, or go in a different direction if you prefer. But the first thoughts, uh, Allison, to you. Yes. Well, I would say picking up just where you left off, Jeff, um, I do think deep reading. And I think deep reading of things set before the 20th or even 21st century. I mean, I, I, as you know, when you come to a lot of these conversations as a historian and a lawyer, one is, I am struck often by the sense that there, there are helpful um, ways of thinking about these questions, not lessons in the kind of very pat sense, the sense of there have been very difficult problems that are that may be very different, but they are worth kind of thinking about and studying. Again, not necessarily as lessons, maybe as maybe as what not to do, but still just I think broadening the kind of temporal horizon. So um, I think you know reading things or reading about the the kind of pre say you know pre nineteen thirties or earlier, whatever people find interesting. But and there and the other thing I'll say on that is. More and more, I think reading about that period shows us just what a wealth of wonderful things, literature there is from these earlier periods. I mean, many of the novels that Story or Marshall or other people were reading 
were bestsellers in their time. And so Mariah Edgeworth, Francis Burney, as con- as closely contemporary or virtual contemporaries to Jane Austen, um, but also sort of more obscure books that people just don't read as much anymore. So um, there's this sense sometimes that Amer- when does American literature begin? But I think we've we've mentioned so many, many wonderful things. And again, not because that was the great era and everything since has been declined, but more to take things outside the framework of the history that many people are a little more familiar with. And, and the final thing I'll say is just, um, I think that something that has been gained is a questioning of what the idea of universality is. So um, not that we need infinite fragmentation, but that the universality of the supposed quote unquote great American novel of the mid 20th century, I think speaks to a pretty narrow slice. Not that one has to read books to recognize oneself only, but when the claim is made, this is a universal description treatment and everything else is niche, I think we lose something. So I think setting to one side, maybe the quest or raising the level of generality about what is universal. Well, it's questions of democracy, we the people participation, what is the union? Um, And that broadening, I think, is welcome. Thank you very much for that. Bernadette, some final thoughts from you. Yes. So I do think deep reading is extremely important. And I actually want to go out on a limb and suggest another reading practice that we could uh, kind of bring back from the earlier period and the founding era, which I think actually has been brought back a bit in the pandemic, which is reading aloud. Um, So there are an increasing number of groups online where people are reading plays out loud with each other. I think that practice of collective reading and collective uh, discussion that really helps to foster a conversation um, that we have already sort of constitution reading groups, but why not have play reading groups going side by side with that um, and then open up the opportunity for a broader conversation about the issues within these uh, wonderful materials. Thank you so much for that. And I'm and I have to share that last week, Akhil Amar, the great my great teacher, broke my heart when he said his own students at Yale Law School are not reading deeply today. And I thought if that is the case, then what is the hope for the future of those who are less privileged and less advantaged? But you give a superb practice, which is by reading together, by taking the primary sources and reading them out loud, we can together grow in wisdom and ensure the focus that many of us have lost the habit of doing with our browsing and so forth. So thank you for that very practical suggestion. Catherine, the last word in this superb discussion is to you. Okay. I, so I think I'll just simply say that this is not my fork, but um, I, I think that not just reading, but um, reading in the context of a discussion with other people somehow, if literary works raise questions. But I also think that maybe one of the most encouraging developments is that poetry is becoming popular again. And um, I was, when I was young, not a particularly fan of Walt Whitman, but it seems to me that his poem is as inclusive as possible, and it's also such a celebration of democracy, and it's his poetry is beautiful, beautiful when it's read out loud, and we probably should be reading more out loud. Hear, hear. Well, we will do that here at the Constitution Center. We'll play our part in continuing to convene wonderful discussions like this one, which just shed so much light and truth 
And we are also putting online a new founder's library of great primary texts from American history, including the classical texts that inspired the founders, documents from the founding era, documents from the second founders, the women's suffrage, the civil rights era, and you have all inspired us to include the literature. And then we'll reconvene and we will read it aloud. Dear friends, thank you for joining, for taking an hour in the middle of your day to educate yourself and continue this learning with deep reading and discussion and growing in wisdom and light. Alison LaCroix, Bernadette Myler, and Catherine Zuckert for having inspired all of us to read. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was wonderful. This episode was produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Tanea Tauber, Lana Ulrich, and John Guerra. It was engineered by Kevin Kilburn. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. Again, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review. It helps new listeners find out about the show and decide to tune in. And as always, join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.